What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. fellow flamethrowers, and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, will be your host today, and joining me are two of my beloved co-hosts, Jessica Looser, the dogged investigative journalist from Austin, Texas, and Shereen Ahmed, sports reporter and self-proclaimed cat lover in Toronto, Canada. (laughs) This week, we're going to talk about Danica Patrick's complicated legacy, look at the current status of the top three women's pro leagues, pro team leagues, I would say, the National Women's Hockey League, National Women's Soccer League, and WNBA, and play a fun game of If I Were Commissioner. (laughs) And then we have an incredibly special guest interview today. Jessica is going to talk to the legend herself, Holly Rowe, about the NCAA softball tournament, women's basketball, her recent adventure into play-by-play, and so much more because Holly Rowe literally does it all. She is an ESPN announcer. If you're you're not familiar with her. And uh, if you're not familiar with her, then today's your lucky day. <laughs> she will be familiar with her soon. First of all, I want to shout out to our patrons. Uh, if you're new to us, we are an entirely independent podcast, no big media backers, which means we rely totally on our listeners to keep us going. And the way we do that is through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash burn it all down. You can go there and pledge a monthly donation. And for as little as just $2 a month, which I have to say a lot of the Patreon pages make it be $5 a month as the smallest, but we do $2 because we are all broke too. <laughs> so, but for as little as $2 a month, you can get access to exclusive Patreon-only podcast segments. Last week, we had a lot of fun talking about the NBA and NHL playoffs for our Patreon listeners. But I do want to say, now that we're a week into these conference semifinals, <laughs> do we have anything to add? How's this last week been? Should we not ever make predictions? Should we never make a prediction ever again on this show? <laughs> is that what you're is that if, 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 if people want to laugh at us, they should go back to that podcast. <laughs> I think Amira is laughing at us is what's happening. I think <laughs> I, I'm kind of I love Amira so much, but I'm a little relieved she's not on this week because I would just be eating so much humble pie, like so much Although, about her know. Celtics. Cleveland, Cleveland crushed the Celtics last night. So That's it's not true. over. It's not over yet. It's not over. It's not over. I am still holding on to hope. <laughs> Because Boston sports fans, even, you know, Boston sports fans are bad when it makes even the most lovely person in the world, Amir Rose Davis. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's been really fun to watch those playoffs, but there is a lot more to talk about. And so we're just going to get right into it. Danica Patrick. <laughs> 
Jess, get us started on this conversation. Sure. So this upcoming Sunday, May 27th, it'll be Danica Patrick's last pro race, the ND 500. She's been a history making female athlete. She's you know, striking many firsts for women drivers in both NASCAR and IndyCar, which means she's taken a lot of criticism in her career that is tinged with or hell is blatantly sexist. But she's also kind of a strange person person to have as a feminist icon, given the way she's marketed herself. Remember those racy GoDaddy ads or the Maxim spreads <laughs> that she's done? GoDaddy is actually now back as her main sponsor in her final race. She'll be driving their very bright green car around the track in Indianapolis. She's often balked at the doing this for women thing, right? She sort of famously has said that that wasn't what this was all about for her. But she also has named her new clothing company Warrior, which I find fascinating. She's had, you know, an apolitical or you could read that as conservative persona. But of course, she's racing in a very conservative sport. And you could argue that she's used her sex appeal to get ahead because the way sports media, media in general, and, you know, this whole fucking culture works is that women are prized first for being women, for being sexy, then maybe for being athletes. She wasn't the only female driver on the scene when she broke out, and there have been other women alongside her during her career, but it's her name and face that we all know. So going in, you know, sort of looking back on her career as, as we come to the end of it, I want to throw this to Lindsay first. How, how do you feel about Danica Patrick? Yeah, complicated is the right word that I feel. It's it's tough because usually the women I really look up to in sports are women that, you know, nobody's perfect. There's no I don't think I have a single icon that's like perfect, you know. But but everyone it usually contains a lot of the attributes that I look for in a friend or in a mentor or just values that I hold dear, you know, that they're very progressive, that they very much speak up for women, that they talk about intersectionality and all of these things. And that's not who Danica Patrick is. And she's just never, that's just not, not who she is. However, you know, I started covering NASCAR about four years ago for Bleacher Report. And when I started covering the sport, I knew nothing about it. I was just needed to make money. And my editor asked if I could do NASCAR columns. And I said, yes, because <laughs> you just say yes. Because <laughs> it would be an extra like $150 a week. And I needed that very badly at the time. And so, I, you know, I started looking at the sport and I really found myself rooting for Danica and wanting her to succeed and following her car around the track and trying and and always whenever the standings would come up in the mid race you know just looking for her car and you know it's it's always been interesting to me that it's, it 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 still can mean so much like that her representation in the sport could still mean so much even to to someone like me you know who's not an aspiring race car driver by any means but just that seeing a woman like mixing it up with all of these guys on a weekend week out basis that i could still find that to be powerful even if i didn't find everything that she stood for to be empowering if that makes sense so so i'm i'm sad to see her career ending i've got to be honest, I'm sad that she didn't wasn't able to find more success on the track. And I'm uh, sad that this is kind of where we're leaving it. And I hope that this will open up doors for many to follow. But I also think it's important to acknowledge what we're going to you know talk about today, which is that she's, we need to talk about the more complicated parts of her legacy. Did that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Shireen? Shireen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 
I don't know much, admittedly, about NASCAR. I know of Danica Patrick, so what Jessica, you said, was very apt that I know nothing about it. But in terms of women going on, other than the pit mechanic that we talked about, who was the first black pit mechanic in, in, in NASCAR history, I know of Danica Patrick. I also know that Danica Patrick tweeted out after Trump won that, uh, what a crazy night. I look forward to real Donald Trump. Hashtag make America great again. Don't we want America to be great? Stay positive. Mercia. So I'm wondering if Mercia was actually a... Like, I'm assuming it's a typo. But what I'm trying America. to say... Yeah. Was she spelt at Mercia? And I'm like, was she being yeah. meta there or was it just a typo? Whatever. Now, the thing is, is that I get it. Like, you know, she's this woman coming up. But when she was prompted to talk more about the specific tweet for which she, in my opinion, fairly got a lot of criticism, her reply was, well, you know, people are so negative and they're the most loud. Well, let's you know, in terms of the complication of, of Danica Patrick, let's talk about the absolute zero ability for her to have any race analysis at all. Because it's not that people are negative, it's that people are systemically oppressed. So when people complain about something, it's not them being negative, it's of them actually talking about something that's seriously problematic. And her race privilege completely plays into part here, because she doesn't even understand the baseline here of negativity and systemic issues because it's something she's never experienced. Absolutely, she's had to confront sexism and misogyny in the highest levels and in, in the echelons of like misogyny. I'm sorry, NASCAR is, does very well up there. But it, for me, I, I'm not, I, I can't embrace this person. I mean, I just simply can't embrace people who love Trump or who are hopeful for Trump. Like for me, it doesn't compute. Yeah, I think that's incredibly fair. And I often wonder, I mean, if, if I hadn't started really, you know, following these races in, you know, a little bit of a different world in 2014, 2015, when there wasn't a Trump for her to be tweeting about, if, if I would have been able to follow her the way I was, you know, when I was first, you know, and I, and I don't think I would have. I think it changes everything. And rightly so. The, the marketing, let's talk a little bit about the way she's marketed herself. Because it's very interesting. NASCAR is, first of all, one of the hardest sports, if not the hardest sport to break into. And I know that sounds bizarre, but think about it that on the upper echelon, there are only about 42 drivers every single week. And they're the same 42 drivers week in, week out on the top, you know, circuit of the, of the sport. They're the ones that are making the money. And they also, most of these drivers have, 10, 15, 20 year long careers even. So it's not like there's a bunch of turnover between year to year. So it's an incredibly difficult sport to, you know, to make it to the top. And in order to make it to the top, one of the things you need is sponsors. It is not a you get added to this team and everything is taken care of for you sport, you sign a contract, and you're guaranteed this money. You are a walking billboard for and your car is literally a billboard board for advertisers. So on the one hand, you know, Danica, you know, the way she, you know, embraced her, you know, sexuality and used her her looks could be off-putting to some, although we also want to say we don't want to hold that against anyone, right? We, we, you know, we want everyone to to do what they want and what makes them comfortable. But at the same time, it allowed her to, uh, she wouldn't have 
been able to get to the NASCAR's top series, honestly, if she hadn't had, along with solid racing talent, all of these sponsors to come along with her and all the eyeballs that that brought. So how do we feel about that, about her kind of exploiting the patriarchy in this way? Jess? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) at the same time, yeah, exploiting it, but also participating directly in it, which is why... Yeah, no, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Which is why, I mean, I hated those GoDaddy ads. Like, I hated all the GoDaddy ads at that point in time. They were all trash. But, you know, it was a bummer that she was participating in it, even as I can hear the logic of your argument about sponsorship, which makes me just think, like, maybe... I don't know. What's the point of the sport? I don't like that. Maybe that's not fair yeah. on a sports <laughs> podcast. But like, if that's what it takes to be a successful woman in this sport, like, what is the redeeming quality here uh, of this? I don't. I don't even know what to do with that. And I, yeah, it's like I don't necessarily judge her choices. In you know when. They're so narrow. Like you only get so many, and you know who am I to say? I'm not the one making them. But also, I really did hate a lot of those choices. But again, is it that is that about the individual or the system? And I don't I don't know how you really reckon with that, other than just sort of holding it. Well, I mean, I you know I will defer to both of you, obviously, on this whole thing. But in terms of patriarchy, it sort of puts, and I'm no way advocating for anyone who I find super problematic in their views on or non-existent views on race. But it's a very tough system to work in. Like you're trying to work in a system that's established and wasn't created to benefit or include women in the first place. So at, at the same time that I'm, you know, we're critical of her in different ways, and I'm specifically critical of her in terms of her commentary. I'm sorry, I can't shake off the supporting Trump. I don't care how positive you want to be. I just can't. I can't do fair, it. And I'm, fair. I'm. I'm very positive. I'm a positive fucking person. <laughs> so th- the reality is, is that it's not a system. I don't blame her entirely. And in terms of using, you know, sexuality or doing this is this is what is done about. And we get into a conversation about survival. What does that look like? How do you advance yourself? I mean, even her team that surrounded her, they wouldn't even know how because like as Lindsay already mentioned, she's probably surrounded only by men. So it's not even sure she's, there's no there's no map of how to navigate this. So it is really complicated. Yeah. And I guess just to kind of wrap up this conversation, you know, Going back to one of the other criticisms of her, which was that because of the amount of marketing that she did for herself and the amount of attention that she garnered, by the time she made it to NASCAR or really was kind of brought over to NASCAR from the IndyCar series, which is a really difficult transition for any racer. And it's especially difficult when you're under the microscope like she was. I mean, she grew up racing in in, in IndyCars and in open wheel racing and then went to the stock cars. And that's that's not easy to do. And she, you know, really never found the success to match her the hype on that circuit. But there was always this perception that things were just gifted to her because she was this woman who everyone knew. And that always really bothered me because 
first of all, like look around. Like if it was that easy, you you would see a lot more Danica Patrick's, right? Like you would see a lot more women if really people were just going to give you a, a NASCAR career because you were an attractive woman. Like that's not really <laughs> how this works. And early on in her career, I mean, she went through a lot. She went in her late teens, actually when she was still in high school, she got an opportunity through a sponsor to go race Formula One over in England. And she left everybody, you know, in America behind and went over. And, you know, she not only was she an American over there, she was an American girl and, you know, a teenager. And, you know, she there was a story, there's this great 2012 ESPN profile, which we will link. And she was talking about that experience. And she said, you know, I remember one day specifically, I finished faster than everyone else. And the owner of the team got on the other guys like this girl is the quickest. What the F are you doing? Get out and drive. And, you know, that was the owner of her team. (laughs) That was the guy who was supposed to be supporting her, who was throwing her under the bus. So she did overcome a lot of things. And she is incredibly tough. And I think that in a lot of ways, that tough exterior that she had to kind of develop very early on to climb her way up in this world got, you know, it it stayed with her and that, you know, it, it made her people see her as this kind of evil villain almost, you know, like not nice woman. But in many ways, I saw that as kind of a survival mechanism. Uh, and I'd also like to say she is right now dating Aaron Rodgers and oh. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers. Well, but he's actually been pretty progressive in a lot of ways. So I'm kind of hoping that oh. like she's getting out of the NASCAR world that maybe okay. <laughs> this will help a little bit. You don't like Aaron Rodgers? I don't like that he's dating Danica Patrick. <laughs> that makes me that makes me question Aaron Rodgers. I don't know. It could go the other way. You never know what these things. It goes the other way. Got yeah. it. Got it. Anyways, let's let's move on. <laughs> All right. This week, our Jessica Luther talked to ESPN's Holly Rowe. Here's that interview. If you have followed sports at all in the last two decades, you have seen Holly Rowe on your TV screen as a sideline reporter. She's one of the absolute best in the business. Or perhaps you've heard her do play-by-play. Yesterday, she made her debut doing play-by-play for the WNBA when she called the championship rematch between the Minnesota Lynx and the LA Sparks on ESPN2 during the opening weekend for the league's 22nd season. The game came down to the final shot with LA winning it, another classic between those rival teams. Burn It All Down is thrilled and honored to have Holly Rowe with us this week. Thank you for talking with me today, Holly. I'm so excited. Thank you. I have so much that I want to cover with you. This was a huge weekend for women's sport in general. And so, of course, I'm going to get to the WNBA kickoff. Uh, But I wanted to start with the NCAA softball tournament because I know that you often cover softball. And this is a sport that's grown in popularity almost exponentially over the last few years. So the championship has just started, correct? They were doing regionals this weekend? Yeah, they just finished regionals and 16 teams advanced to what they call super regionals. And that action begins this weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for the eight spots to go to the World Series. Wow. Okay. And are you going to be calling any of the softball this year? Yes, I am doing Arizona at UCLA. So this will be the first time that that is one of the biggest rivalries in college softball for decades. 
And it will be the first time that they've ever met in the super regional with the world series on the line. So in our softball world, when I say this is an epic series, it is, you know, the old Lakers Celtics of the, of yesteryear um, in softball this weekend. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. How did you get into softball? What What do you love about softball? Well, I played softball growing up. Um, this is an embarrassing story because it tells you how far <laughs> ahead. How, how old I am. But so when I was growing up, we didn't have a softball team for my high school. Like I was just after Title IX passed, and so women's sports were really just starting to become a bigger deal when I was in high school. And so I played in my church softball league. The Mormon Church in Utah, where I grew up, has an extensive youth sports program. So we had like, I don't know, eight or 10 softball teams and a league, and it was super competitive. So all the girls that would have been playing high school softball in my town were playing church softball. And then bonnet ball was our other rec league. So um, I I am one of the best ever um, church league softball players, probably, but that doesn't count for much. (laughs) (laughs) I I always feel cheated out that I didn't get to play in in high school or college because I love it and I was good at it. I'm kind of built exactly right for softball. But um, started covering it, I think, 15, almost 14 or 15 years ago for ESPN. Uh, one of my bosses, Ed Placey, called me up and said, hey, the, the person that normally does softball is pregnant and has to go on maternity leave. Could you fill in at the World Series? And really, I had not heard much about the World Series. You know, it was just really starting to be televised. And so I filled in. And I think that was, was either 14 or 15 years ago. And the rest is history. I've worked every World Series since then. I have friends who love softball. And it's amazing to me just how big it has become. I mean, ESPN is showing all of these matches, right? Like you can watch the entire tournament if you'd like now. It was so crazy. I got home last night from the WNBA game and I got to my hotel room and I had a WNBA game on my iPad. And then I had three different softball games playing on the TV and my phone. And I was like, I just am tickled today that this many options for viewing women's sports are on TV in one day. Like, just think of how far we've come Um, that, that every WNBA game yesterday was televised in some capacity. Every single softball game yesterday was televised in some capacity. I mean, I just feel like it's huge progress for us. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is I saw your coverage of the NCAA beach volleyball tournament and ESPN is so interesting because they cover so much stuff and they just continue, especially now that you can stream so much. Um, And I was wondering about like your position at this company that you've been at for decades and you're obviously like a really strong voice and advocate for women's sport. How much sway do you have in that space to say, I think we should be covering this other really cool thing that's going on in women's sport. Like how does that work behind the scenes? You know, I don't know how much sway I have. I do think people would listen to me. I don't think I have any power, but I do think I could be a voice. Um, And years ago when beach volleyball, it it was only three, this is only the third season that the NCAA has had beach volleyball. So it's a brand new sport. So if you think about how big softball is now, this is like us getting into softball all those years ago. And so I, you know, I talked Mm -hmm. to my volleyball boss at the time and I said, we have to do this event. I think this can be huge. We could grow beach volleyball. This is a sport that is just dying to explode. And um, for whatever reason, I think we were all the the bid process had already happened. We didn't get the rights. I don't know if we even bid on them, to be honest. I I went to TBS and Turner 
And okay. I think since then, we've all kind of been like, we need to get into this. And um, one of my other bosses at ESPN, Pete Durzis, he's kind of a guy that specializes in putting events together. And he kept coming to the bosses too, saying, we, we need to get this sport on TV. This is a huge event. So I think there was a lot of us behind the scenes that were like, we see potential in this sport. And so, you know, I, I think it takes people like that of like, hey, we can make this interesting. Absolutely. And ESPN definitely has that ability. So that is so exciting to see those things happening. Okay, so let's talk WNBA because this was like a huge weekend for the start of the league. It was a huge weekend for you personally. But I wanted to start by asking you to talk a little bit of you're famous for how good you are at sideline reporting. I actually thought that was a really sweet moment when you first threw it to LaChina Robinson, who was your sideline reporter for the game this weekend. And she was like, oh, this is a lot of pressure <laughs> to be Holly's <laughs> sideline reporter. Um, and so I, f- I first wanted to ask you about that job in particular. What do you think it is? What makes you so good at it? What skill is it you that know, you have? It's interesting because they take two very different skills. And that was really brought home to me again yesterday. The play-by-play job is so different. You have to be a keen observer, a wordsmith, a person that can maneuver quickly in and out of things because they're throwing promo Mm -hmm. cards at you. And like Mm -hmm. you're a traffic cop. There's all this stuff going on in my headset and you have to seamlessly make it all happen on television. The sideline reporter, you're just coming in and out with impromptu things. So I feel like why I am a strong sideline reporter is I am obsessively nosy. Like I want to find stuff out. (laughs) This is a strength slash weakness of mine is like, I'm so curious. I think my curiosity is my number one trait. Um, But I am so curious. I want to know why I want to know what they're saying. You know, I I just want to be able to tell, tell the story, but I'm creative too. Is so when something's happening on the court, and I'm like, oh, oh, I, I, I remember this will fit here. Da, 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 da. And so because mm. nothing's ever planned with my sideline role, I think my ability to be creative and adapt is my greatest strength, which is, you know, maybe why I've gone more in that direction than the play by play. But, um, you know, it's, it's good to develop all your skills. And I was grateful to be able to try to develop a little of my play by play skill yesterday. As I was listening to you do it, I was wondering what kind of prep goes into play-by-play because I obviously you have to hold a lot of information about the players themselves and the teams themselves and all that sort of stuff. But I also just wondered about like having little catchphrases and ways you describe where people are on the court. Like, are, are those kind of do you have to prep that kind of stuff? You know, it's interesting. Somebody asked me that. I I do work with people that have catchphrases or certain ways that they say things. In fact, I stole a couple of them from my partner, Ryan Rucco, yesterday. He has one Mm -hmm. phrase where he's always like, she bullies her way to the basket. And I love that Mm -hmm. phrase because it's when a woman like puts her shoulder down and is leaning into the defender and pushes through the contact to finish at the basket. Um, So I... I think if I did it more on a, on a regular basis, I would develop a little bit more of that vocabulary, but you grow up listening to sports. I think so much of that vocabulary is already within us, but I think the challenge is to not be cliche and just say something for the sake of saying it, you know? Right. Right. So how do you feel about your debut as a play-by-play for WNBA? (laughs) (laughs) I need to go back and listen to it today, but uh, Rebecca Lobo, who's a dear friend of mine, she looked at me and she said, that went way better than I thought it was going to. And she's like, no offense, I'm not trying to be condescending, but you know, she didn't know how I do. I hadn't done it for a long time. And so for her to say she thought it went well, that meant a lot to me because she's someone I respect her opinion. Um, I, I definitely think I could have done 
better on a few technical issues, like who was in the bonus or who had fouls to give. You know, there's some technical things that you need to let the viewers know. But down at the stretch in the fourth quarter, I tried to be really um, careful with not over-talking, with just setting up, you know, both teams have a timeout or this team has a foul to give or, you know, this many seconds left or what have you to just paint the picture of the drama and what was unfolding. And so I do think I'd give myself an A plus for not over-talking. I'd probably Mm -hmm. give myself a B minus for some of the technical things I could have done better. I, one thing I didn't do that I thought I would have done more is like, I had all this copious notes on every player. And what I found is Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of time in a broadcast. Like you have time when someone's at the free throw line to quickly get in, you know, one line about Chelsea Gray led the league in three point shooting last year or one little quick nugget. And then you're doing a promo or you're getting the sideline person involved or you're getting your analyst involved. So I think I learned that the economy of words is important because it's hard to get stories in. Yeah. And what a hell of a game to debut with. Oh, no, I mean, no pressure, right? Game winner. Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh God. I can't. What a, what a game. I mean, that was, I honestly can't remember your commentary at the end because I was like screaming through the last like minute of play, I think. So that's I, as it should be like, you should, I, I really think you should never be like, Oh, the announcers are this or that. I think you should just remember you watched a good game and they told you what was happening. So I love that. That makes me happy. Yeah. Do you anticipate doing more play by play this season? I don't think this season, just because our schedule's already set and this was filling in for Ryan Rucco, who has Yankees assignments. So I'm definitely sidelined for the rest of this season. But I I just wanted to do it, one, because I love the league and I know these two teams so well. I just thought this would be a good way to honor them of, I want to do it, not some stranger that hasn't done the WNBA all year. You know, like this this was me taking care of my kids in a way. And yeah. you know, the rest of our team's back together all season, but I hope it showed my bosses, you know, that I have some versatility and that they can think of me for, for other roles too. That's great. I, the last thing that I wanted to ask you going back to softball, and then we'll do this for the WNBA too. So you just told us about UCLA and Arizona for softball, but are there any other storylines that we should be paying attention to for the rest of the championship? Yes, absolutely. So one of them is Oklahoma has a chance to three-peat. So softball, oh, wow. you know, they have won the last two national championships, Oklahoma, and that that they are just as good this year. Um, they, they are into the super regional and they are just playing so great. They have probably the best defense in the country and they have a freshman that's leading the nation in home runs. So they wow. have a potent great defense and then two all-american pitchers. So I think Oklahoma is still going to be a handful. But then Oregon is another team I've really got my eye on because I think they're the complete package and they've been to the World Series the last few years knocking on the door they get eliminated too early. So I think Oregon has a lot to prove and they have the pieces to do that this year. Wow, that sounds very exciting. And the World Series is played in Oklahoma City, right? Yes, yes. And I'm sure so. some, there's some fans out there going, wait, Oklahoma always has a home you know, field advantage, which <laughs> is, is a little bit true. But yeah. um, this is an event that's been there for you know as long as I've been doing it. I think it's about 20 plus years now. And it's a great vi- environment. And softball fans flock there. Like I've met people that are like, I got my tickets to the World Series. And that was like in November. You know, like wow. people want to come there and want to make it a bucket list sporting event. So it's really cool. 
That's awesome. And then uh, looking at the WNBA, are there specific things that you're looking forward to this season? Players we should be paying attention to? Any? I mean, we just had the championship matchup that you called. Um, but any other stuff that we should be paying attention to as fans? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting year of the old guard versus the young guard. So there is this, mm. this wash of fresh young talent in the league, like maybe the most I can remember ever. But there are still some older teams. Uh, Cheryl Reed from Minnesota said, you know, I'll take the old timers any day because they're talented but intelligent. Um, right. But there's there's come a point where these young players, so Asia Wilson at Las Vegas is a player that I've got my eye on. Diamond DeShields is a rookie in Chicago that's yeah. gotten off to a good start. Um, so I've kind of got my – Brianna Stewart is someone who this is her third year and I think a year for her to make a big move. So I kind of want to see how the young guns rise up and if the old older players are able to hold hold court. Yeah, it should be a really fun season. And we look forward to listening to all of your amazing sideline reporting. And thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, Holly Rowe. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. I appreciate your time. All right. Well, the WNBA season gets started this weekend. By the time you're already listening to it, pretty much every team will have played a game. You've also got the NWSL season that is well underway. And there's been some big news out of the NWHL this week. We kind of wanted to recap all that and then play a fun game of if I were commissioner, Shireen, get us started. So I was planning to sing Who Runs the World Girls as part of my intro to the segment, go but ahead. I'm going to pass on oh. that because I have a, no, I have a terrible, <laughs> just so you know, I have a terrible voice. I can dance in the card to it, but I can't, I can't sing it. But my point is, is as Lindsay mentioned, there's some really, really fun stuff happening and, and WHL added a team in Minnesota, which is really exciting. Now, there's a lot of stuff coming up and being reflected and opined upon, about those two leagues, the National Women's Hockey League and the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Now, I find this really fascinating because now players and former players have started discussing it, like Cassie Campbell, who is a legend in Canadian women's hockey said, you know, there's a hashtag to try to unite one league. And as well, Hillary Knight, who plays for La Canadienne, even though she's, you know, huge, huge part of the American women's gold winning, gold medal winning Olympian. That's right, Shireen. Yes, yes. she is. Yes. See how, see how <laughs> modest and good I am for saying that? <laughs> <laughs> so she actually plays in the Canadian Women's Hockey League. She plays for in Montreal with Le Canadien, and she also said that it would be good. Now, historically, we've talked about this on the show before. The two leagues have very different political, not political, but different philosophies in terms of how to run. So as much as it's easy for everyone to say, Let's pool the resources. It doesn't really work that way all the time. And this also is a really good indication of sometimes how, even within structures of women's sports, there's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of, you know, ideology that might not be similar for everybody. And I think this is an important conversation we could have. Now, to get on to the WNBA, I think that Lisa Borders is, is, is incredible in terms of commissioner. Like, I think she's really, really, really powerful. She seems to know what she's doing. I, if like, I would want to model myself like her as a commissioner. Like, I just think she's in touch with the players. She understands what's happening. And in terms of growing the game, it's effective. Their social media stuff is, their Twitter is on point. Their Instagram is on point. So mad respect for that. And to oversee all that and delegate it is really, really great. Then we get to the NWSL, who actually 
actually don't have a commissioner at the moment. <laughs> and our, and I mean, and my instinct is to nominate Brenda, but I feel like Brenda would be more effective as president of FIFA because she would just destroy like all these useless men. So that's <laughs> that's my instinct is to, to to have that. But I mean, I wonder about that, and I wonder about the success of the NWSL, who without a commissioner, they have an acting commissioner, but they don't have an actual somebody in that position. And I'm like, how how is this happening? Because there's incredible players in the NWSL there's you know it's a world cup year next year it's 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 just a really it makes me wonder and in, but in certain places like we see in portland that scene is still thriving so it makes me wonder about the culture of the game the culture of women's soccer in the united states and how each individual place like orlando has an incredible culture and a lot of team support for pride so the fact that NWSL hasn't had a commissioner for a year makes me also wonder why the gong show that is USA Soccer sometimes isn't helping more to find someone. And I mean, we know that USA Soccer was very busy in their own ranks. What I don't want to see is a man as commissioner of the NWSL. I can tell you that straight up. That's (laughs) absolutely always. (laughs) One of the things that's been interesting to me is watching how this Utah expansion franchise has done this year in the WSL. Has anyone else been paying attention to that? They've been getting like really fantastic crowds. It's good to see that like there is a way to do this and have it be successful. Does anyone else have thoughts on that? Jess? Yeah, I like one thing I'm thinking about as you guys are talking and and thinking about this and how important it is. I think one thing that women's sports in general struggles with is building fan culture. You know, we talked a lot about media infrastructure and how important that is as as part of this and and the lack of having a media to help build that culture is important always in talking about this. But thinking about how the NWSL does not have a commissioner and then like looking at what Utah is doing. And I'm thinking, like, especially for women's sport as it is right now, how how much does that sort of umbrella structure matter that like bigger thing like having a national a commissioner of the league versus what the actual local people are doing right because that's the secret or that, that's what they're doing in Utah right is they've done a huge local campaign you know they're modeling themselves after the thorns they've been very clear about this that's their goal is to do what portland's doing but you know it does really matter we There's a similar, you know, the Dallas Wings, which is a team that I've paid a lot of attention to in the WNBA, they've had the worst attendance for the last two years, and they have a new guy in charge of the team, and he has done a phenomenal job in the last year of building up season tickets holders, so they have way more season ticket holders. But a big part of how they've done the work of having more people in the stands, or that's the goal this season, is to go into the local community, and specifically to go into the local women's basketball, girls' basketball community, and try to build from there and really have people on the ground like building this. So I'm just trying to think about like what is like what is it that a commissioner can do for women's sports league versus like what how much does that matter versus really the, what the local people are doing. I also wanted to just sort of comment on that too, Jess, about I've been listening and reading about with WNBA, what the players say about Lisa, because a lot of the time they're asked this question. And I think those relationships are really important. Relationships generally are important, but how the players feel about the commissioner. And I haven't heard anyone, like the players are always very supportive of the way that it's being handled. And that's a testament 
to the league in itself and how happy players are with the way things are going. So I, I just, I really, I really like that. Like it makes me feel positive. Cause remember I'm positive. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to keep so saying it, Shireen. Yeah. <laughs> you have to keep Shireen telling it. Full of it over there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like, I, it actually makes me feel really happy. And in so many of the interviews I've seen or the longer ones, or people ask the athletes about least supporters and they say good stuff. I mean, there's also, you know, obvious, you know, suggestions and feedback and criticisms that are totally fair. But on the whole, like to trust your leader, this is what we're talking about. They trust their leader. And for me, it comes down to that so much of this. Yeah, I would agree. I think what you need from a commissioner is you need to be that face. You need to be that face advocating mm. for the league. Yeah. I want to see you, if you're a commissioner, I want to see you doing the morning shows. And I'm talking everything from the Today Show to Sports Center to, you know, local news. I want to see you advocating for for changes at pushing places forward, pushing places like Yahoo Sports and, you know, Fox Sports and, you know, ESPN, which we, you know, we talked about does a fairly good job with this, but just to keep demanding more and to pushing for these changes, like on a bigger, broader level, and and being fearless about that. I like Lee supporters. And I do think that the players have faith on her. I don't think it's as perfect of a relationship as a lot of us like to portray it as sometimes there it is very much a league that's still trying to to work these things out and you know i've been talking to a lot of players about how this take a stand campaign came up which if you haven't followed the WNBA this week launched a big take a seat and take a stand campaign which announced that five dollars from every ticket sale to WNBA games will be going to causes they're women's causes and so there's about six you can choose from some you know from planned parenthood to you know there's it's on us uh, an lgbtq it's on us so there's a lot of great ones there aren't any however that deal with race that are you know organizations for black women and considering the WNBA is predominantly a league of black women and obviously has done so much activism in that area with the black lives matter that really i think it it struck all of us here at burn it all down as something that was missing i'm actually uh i'll have a piece hopefully on this i think progress maybe even but by the time this this podcast is up and i'm talking to lisa borders later today and and talked with elizabeth williams a center for the Atlanta dream about this yesterday. And she's, she's a player rep. And she said, yeah, honestly, I mean, this is a great campaign, but it kind of took us players by surprise. We weren't that involved in it. And, you know, I, she was like, I didn't really hear about it till like a week before. And then all of a sudden it was being launched. And, you know, so, I, you know, it, it's not perfect. And there's a long way to go. I would like, to, I would still like to see Lisa Borders taking more charge with the communication between her players, but also taking a more of a leadership position as far as advocating for places to do better with their WNBA coverage. And I think, you know, look, we've got to call people out. We've just got to keep pushing for more. Yeah. And can I point and- out that Maya Moore was on SportsCenter this week and she called this out on Twitter. They put a graphic up, you know, on the bottom of the screen. I think she was coming up and, and it said three time WNBA champion and she had to be like, Y'all need to fact check at Sports Center because she's a four time yeah. <laughs> champion. <laughs> like time. Sports Center got it wrong. Like they, they had space for her and the conversation was great and I'm really happy she's there. But I was really happy to see her say, Thanks guys for this, but also 
you you should know your basic facts about me. I mean, the thing is, like, shaming can work. <laughs> like, not always. It's not 100%. I mean, look at who we have as president. It doesn't work on everyone. But it does, you know, we just, you have to keep being fearless. And, uh, you know, when I was talking with Elena Deladon, and, and I think this was on our interview that was on this show two weeks ago. And, you know, she kind of said, like, I don't get, you know, we female athletes don't get the privilege right now of just being athletes. Like, we also have to be advocates for ourselves and for others at like every step of the way. And I think it's kind of up to all of us. And I really think like that's got to start at the top. But then you need, as Jess was saying, you need on these local grassroots levels, the owners and the coaches to really be taking the initiative to getting out within these communities and building that culture. You have to have it built from the grassroots level and from the top. And then hopefully we're going to meet in the middle somewhere really special. Right now, one of the tough things in the WNBA is there is so much talent in this league. If you look at the players getting cut, it's just mind-boggling. You only have 144 rocks spots, there's definitely enough talent to do at least two more expansion teams, I would say. But there's there's fear that you're not going to be able to build that market. So we've got to be better at this because you want to make sure that the, the, the talent doesn't get wasted because that's just going to take us backwards. Whew, okay, let's do a quick round of if I were commissioner. Uh, Shireen, what's the one thing if you took over women's sports for, for a week, what would be what would be the first thing on your agenda to do? Wow. All under the guise of smashing toxic patriarchy, I would increase merchandise sales and like try to promote merch sales, merchandise sales everywhere, like across the board. And, And it has been done. It can be done. Secondly, I would honestly look at pay grades of athletes immediately and try to do what needed to be done in conjunction with looking at ticket sales. Like I, I want to reject, I would get an economist immediately, a, a, a woman economist or non-binary person to come on and help me debunk this idea that women shouldn't be paid or non-binary athletes shouldn't be paid because they don't bring in money. Like I need to debunk that forever, ever, ever. And there was a really good article post World Cup and Jacobin about this. And I really, I really liked it. So I would do those things. And and I'm not very money minded, but with women's sports, for me, it really gets back to the idea of parity in terms of pay and remuneration that's acceptable and, and necessary at this point. So that's what I would do. And I would also like offer halal hot dogs in all the stadiums. <laughs> that's just a personal thing. That might be number one. That might yeah, be the that first could thing. Be number one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking merchandise as well. I think that's always such a frustrating thing with women's sport is like you literally can't dress yourself in the way that you would want to as a fan. And it always feels very frustrating. That's always, that's a WNBA problem that they seem to continually have up until this exact moment with their uniform switch from Adidas to Nike. I think the other thing, you know, I'm always sort of thinking about media. It's really hard to get outside of that framework for me. And I would just, we need to figure out some kind of campaign to get these women. And Elena Don talked about this on our podcast two weeks ago, like as people and not just as players, we have, we're so good at that with men. We're so good at at rounding them out and seeing them off the court and giving them a lot of space to be people. And we're so bad at that with women. And I mean, I don't have the answer of how exactly to do that, but I feel like there would have, there needs to be a push for that much more than we have right now. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think I, I too think from a media standpoint, and I think you've got to up your accessibility. <laughs> you know, sometimes it is, it can be a lot more, a lot easier to get a hold of these women than it is for some of the men's leagues. But at the same time, it's still a stretch. A lot of these PR people don't get back to you. Yeah, it can be hard. It's it's so hard. It can be so hard. And look, I get it. And I know that a lot of this is like the athletes do want to just be athletes sometimes and don't want to do all this press. But I don't care. Like, they're going to have to do more. Like, everyone's going to have to do a little bit more press. You've got to be pitching these athletes. I need for these PR people who are running the teams to be – pitching stories to people, to be getting these women out there, to be arranging things, you need to make it a little bit easier for media because you know right now a lot of media is doing this. Is you know A lot of media right now are having to push their bosses to do this or doing it in their own time for their own independent outlets. That's just the reality. So make it easier for them to do it. Open up practices more often. Have more availability for players as far as you know locker room time, one-on-one time, you know, time for podcast, get more things out there on social media about these players' personalities. And I just feel like the more we can open this up, the better things are going to be. Okay, it is burn pile time. Shireen, can you get us started? Oh, I've been waiting to burn this. So as we know from the news, the United States moved to the American embassy to Jerusalem and there'd been, you know, protests and uh, deaths, senseless deaths, murders of Palestinians. But what was really enraging to me in particular is Beitar Jerusalem, a team based in Israel that's notorious for their anti-Arab sentiment, actually renamed themselves after Trump. Whoa. And I quote... Mm. (laughs) Uh, President Trump, and this is coming from the club, quote, President Trump has shown courage and true love of the Israeli people and their capital. And these days, other countries are following his lead in giving Jerusalem its rightful status. The chairman of the club and the owner, Eli Tabib, and the executive manager, Eli Ohana, have decided to add the club's title, the name of the American president who made history and from now on, the club will be called Beitar Trump Jerusalem. Whoa. So to Ugh. give you, so to give you an indication about how gross that is, like I actually managed to say all that without throwing up. It's just an indication of the politics and the mentality of that team, and how Tom Letts, my friend at the Guardian, wrote a piece for this for BBC, and Dave Zirin wrote a piece about this as well this week. But it's actually bringing everything into perspective because for those who conveniently say sports aren't political, but then sports are absolutely used for politics and politicking. So this is gross, all of it, and I, I will puke. So let's just burn it. Burn. Burn. All right. I'd like to burn Florida Atlantic University. (laughs) So this burn pile comes from friend and fellow flamethrower Kenny Jacoby over at the Palm Beach Post. And he reported that Florida Atlantic University reported false numbers to the government, exaggerating how many women played for its sports teams just a year after it ranked among the worst in the country for female representation in sports. Wow. So in 2016, women represented more than half of the school's enrollment, but only 31% of its athletes. 
That percentage was the lowest of the 127 schools that were participating in the highest level of college sports. Just one year later, it claimed it had magically erased its female participation gap. And it told the U.S. Department of Education 2016 that 51% of its athletes were women. Wow. Well, can you guess what? That wasn't true. They literally made up women on these reports and are claiming it's just a clerical oh, era. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so yeah, it, this is just absolutely enraging and great reporting by Kenny to bring this up because you just got to throw that on the burn pile. Burn. 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 Isn't FAU where Lane Kiffin is coach of the football team? Hmm. Is it? I'm actually going to Google that as we sit here. Hold on. Yeah. We should know that. Florida Atlantic University, Lane Kiffin. And and Mm. he's got the Bryles' son as his offensive coordinator there. So we wonder where where is the money going in the FAU athletics Mm. departments that they don't have have to be making up women athletes. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Jess, what are you burning today? Yeah, so earlier this week, the Salt Lake Tribune announced that they're going to cut 34 employees from a newsroom staff of 90. So that's more than a third of their newsroom. This wasn't a result of a hedge fund being ruthless in its desire to make money like we've seen at other local papers. Instead, it's a local wealthy owner of the paper saying he was responding to sharp declines in print circulation and advertising revenues. Part of this burn is to simply lament the loss of so many local reporters throughout the country as papers continue to slash their newsrooms. This absolutely has an effect on sports coverage, especially lesser covered sports, say women's sports, uh, which will now never have a chance of being covered since sports desks will scramble to make sure the big ones, by which, of course, I mean men's pro and some college sports still have dedicated coverage. But more specifically about the Salt Lake Tribune, I wanted to mention they had remarkable coverage of campus sexual assault in 2016 that earned them the Pulitzer in 2017. I mean, we are talking like relentless reporting week after week after week for months of that year about campus sexual assault. This was mainly a team of incredible female investigative reporters that not only shed light on terrible policies at Brigham Young University, but also revealed the way that Utah State University had failed students to report gender violence. And a lot of that work about Utah State stemmed from a case involving a football player. After winning the Pulitzer, the managing editor of the paper, Sheila McCann, said, quote, Our size meant this took commitment from many staffers, and I'm so grateful to work in such a talented, collaborative newsroom. I hope this recognition for our staff is inspiring to other newsrooms our size. Some of those staffers from the Pulitzer team had already left the paper well before these cuts, and I know that some of the team just survived the cuts. But even if the whole team was still there, the fact that they lost a third of their staff means this kind of dogged, collaborative, investigative reporting about very tough topics that question these powerful local institutions that often intersect with fan-loved sports, that's going to be harder than ever to do. So please support your local news because I'm so bummed out about all this news of the shrinking staffs and especially about the Salt Lake Tribune. Burn it. Burn! All right. After all that burning, it is time to lift up some amazing and incredible women. First of all, we want to give a shout out to WNBA President Lisa Borders, who publicly announced support for Planned Parenthood after the man who runs this 
country decided to announce that he was going to defund the the organization. So it's amazing to have leaders like Lisa. That is incredible. Then we want to shout out Francois Bande, the top female player in Canada, who publicly stated that it is racism that prevents her from getting attention. She is a tennis player, I would like to clarify. Also, Toyo Bolade, the 21-year-old basketball player who is getting the YWCA Toronto Young Women Award of Distinction for her work in community engagement and youth empowerment. We have Mariam Nassim, an Australian weightlifter originally from Pakistan, who won bronze at the competition in Melbourne after a back injury. And we have Team China, who won the International Table Tennis Federation finals that were held in Sweden. We have the Chelsea Ladies FC, who won the 2017 and 2018 WSL and FA Cup titles. When we also want to congratulate Emma Hayes, the manager of the Chelsea Ladies FC, for having a healthy baby boy. Alina Svitolina, a tennis player who just won the title in Rome. We have to give her a shout out. The French Open is coming up very soon. We are excited to talk about that here. And, okay, deep breaths. That was a lot. Can we get a drum roll, please? <laughs> Woo! Our winner is Leja Clarendon, WNBA All-Star and former guest here at Burn It All Down. In January, Clarendon filed a lawsuit that claimed that Mohammed Mukta, a longtime athletic department employee at the University of California, invited her to his house when she was an 18-year-old basketball player, walked in while she was using the bathroom and abused her. And this week, it was announced that Mukta was fired after a Title IX investigation that was spurred solely because of Clarendon's lawsuit. And he, the lawsuit concluded that he had violated the university's sexual harassment policy. And altogether, seven other women came forward with claims of sexual abuse by, by Mukhtar, dating back nearly 20 years. So Alasia's advocacy and willingness to step up saved other women from harm and helped bring about justice. So congratulations, Alasia. Thank you. Okay, friends. Another week. Anything good, Jess? Yeah, I have multiple things that are good. Woo-hoo! Yeah, I so every if you know me at all, you know that I love romance novels. And I wanted to tell you all about one that I read this week that I is like perfect. It's a perfect novel. It's called Wanna Bet by Talia Hibbert. And I just I want everyone to read it so that I can talk to everyone about it. It's just so it's like no word in that book is wasted. It is just lovely. She did such a good job. And so now I'm just reading everything she's ever written. And I like all of it. But Wanna Bet was definitely it's so good. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is that I have always loved putting together puzzles. And I just stopped for a long time. And this last week, I put together a thousand piece puzzle. And it was so meditative and cathartic. And I just, I don't know, I just enjoy that process. And at the end, I love to run my hand over the finished product and just feel all that work. And that's just been very lovely this week. That's amazing. Congrats. Shereen? Okay, so I want to start off by saying I want to decolonize and I'm not a fan of the like, monarchy and the royal wedding, whatever, but it was really, really, really hard not to fall in love with Sheikh Ukenna Mason, the young black cellist who completely wowed everybody at the wedding. I'm a former cellist and I've always loved that instrument. I am played for eight years, gave it up for rugby, but that's a different story. 
And I love it. I've always connected. And it was beautiful because in my time, there was definitely no prominent black cellists or South Asian for that matter. So to see this young man being lauded, rightly so, in such a way, brings me so much joy. So I was really happy about that. I've been watching the performances of the choir, which was incredible, and the rendition of Stand By Me, and also, you know, just just the black excellence at that wedding, which in my lifetime, I didn't think I would see. Speaking of royal weddings, my best friend Catherine is getting married in August in Nova Scotia, and I'm very, very excited. Like, I'm so excited because I'm a bridesmaid, and I will make her wedding about me because I've been waiting 25 <laughs> years to be a bridesmaid. So, and I know what I'm wearing, and I'm very excited. Spoiler. <laughs> Please don't wear it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know what I'm wearing, and I'm excited. I will be wearing my Birkenstocks, and I okayed that with her, and she's okay with that. So, and uh, it's in Canada this weekend, there is a, there is a long weekend and I talk about like, I don't like the monarchy, but here I am enjoying the birthday of Queen Victoria, who's, who's dead, but we're still enjoying the benefits of having a long weekend because it was her birthday. So in which time I will be consoling my mom because I think the Winnipeg Jets are out of the playoffs. So she's a bit sad. Anyways, that's what's good. That's incredible. Well, I have to say, I the second we finish this podcast, I am, well, first walking the dogs and drying my hair, but then going straight to the Capital One Arena for the Washington Mystics game. Yes. So the WNBA season starts. I, there are two games. I'll have another one on Tuesday night with to cover for the Mystics. So I'm super excited that the WNBA season is back. I just love going to these games. And then... I, I have to brag a little bit. I don't want to go you ahead. Know, hashtag humble brag. I got a very exciting follow on Twitter this week. Wade Phillips, the defensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams. And if you do not follow Wade Phillips on Twitter, he is, uh, he's in his seventies and he's like this big, like, like, like he's just this big guy, big football guy, but his Twitter is just this like gem of a place. And he has recently discovered bitmojis, which I don't know if you all know what bitmojis are, but they're they're the cartoon version of yourself that you can like, you know, there's like an app and you create like a cartoon version of yourself and you can wear, you put different clothes on yourselves and do different, you know, expressions. They were really big about like six years ago, maybe, <laughs> maybe three. But anyways, Wade Phillips has recently discovered them. And if, if you look back, he's got one. There's one with him. He's got earrings in both of his ears and his bitmoji. And there's one with him <laughs> giving thumbs up in a Celtics jersey. And then the next one, there's one with him giving thumbs up in a Cavs jersey and it the the text of the tweets are just Celtics for one and then the next one is in Cavs but then he had to clarify <laughs> in the next one he said still a Laker fan and that bidmoji is is Wade Phillips uh, wearing a Lakers jersey with his hands up in the air and a very multicolored woohoo across the thing <laughs> and, and oh then my the, gosh. and then the next day wait it gets oh, so gosh. much better so the next day, May 17th, he tweeted out two more bitmojis. One, which was him looking to the right and yelling the word Yanny. <laughs> and the next tweet was him looking to the left and yelling Laurel. <laughs> oh my God. And so 
I tweeted about my joy for this, and then he followed me, and I am one of only 326 people he is following, and I've just never been happier. So thank you, Wade, for your joy. And he also has lots of good puns and things. So his Twitter is at son of bum, because his father was Bum Phillips, who's a legendary football coach. So son of bum is a wonderful Twitter handle as well. So that's my what's good. Okay, thank you all so much for being with us for another week. Uh, you can follow us all on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Find us on Facebook, Burn It All Down. Find us on uh, Instagram. What's our Instagram handle, Shereen? A Burn It All Down Pod. Thank you. I should know that. That's also our website as well. And really, our Patreon is we're we're developing new and fun things for it. So keep an eye on our Patreon. Please support us. We're trying to make it to our next goal, which is $1,200 per month, which will allow us to bring in a little bit more help to make things a little bit easier each week and help us grow our audience. Thanks again. And I suck.